We love making patient stories, and we love that we are able to provide it to you without ads or influence from corporate sponsorships, and we would really like to keep it that way. If you'd like to support our podcast, please donate to Patient Stories at greygenetics.com. That's G-R-E-Y genetics.com forward slash podcast forward slash donate. Everyone just was telling us, he'll be fine. He's just a little bit behind. And I wanted to believe that. The second he was diagnosed, I knew that I had to let go of every dream that I ever had for him. I actually learned about Tay-Sachs in high school psychology class. And I remember thinking, I will never have to worry about that because I'm not Jewish. Genetics isn't always black and white, and the emotions and decisions surrounding genetic testing can be even more complex. Welcome to Patient Stories with Gray Genetics. I'm Eleanor Griffith, a certified genetic counselor and the founder of Gray Genetics, a telehealth genetic counseling and consulting service. It seems like there are constantly headlines in the news about genetics, but few news stories focus on the patient experience. At Gray Genetics, we are collecting patient stories, your stories. Every other Tuesday, we share an interview with a patient or a genetic counselor. Those are probably my best memories with James, is just sitting either on the bed or on the couch or on our back porch and holding him in my lap. I talk about carrier screening whenever I can. It doesn't necessarily have to change what path you're on, but at least you have that knowledge and you can have an educated decision instead of you know, being blindsided by a diagnosis like we were. Shannon Miller is a 29-year-old project manager living with her husband and their golden retriever in Columbus, Ohio. In December 2016, her son James was born. Even though James was her first child, it didn't take Shannon long to notice that James's development did not seem to be on track. While trying to find help for her son, Shannon's concerns were often dismissed, and it was also suggested that her concerns could be explained by postpartum depression. At 13 months of age, James was finally diagnosed with Tay-Sachs disease, a rare inherited autosomal recessive condition that usually affects children beginning in infancy. She lost her son to Tay-Sachs just a few months after his second birthday and just a few months before we recorded this interview. Hi, Shannon. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast and being willing to share your story. Nice to be here. Thank you for having me. So tell me about your son, James. How much time did you have with him and how long ago was it that he died? He was alive for about 27 months, born in December of 2016, and he just passed away about two months ago in April of 2019. Okay. So very recent, actually. Yeah. Okay. And I understand that it took quite a while for James to actually receive the diagnosis of Tay-Sachs disease. Did you notice that there was a problem early on? Or when, when did you start to think that, that he actually had a really serious health issue? Um, it was kind of a slow process for me. Um, he rolled over one time by the time he was three months old. And so in my mind, that was just like, okay, let's check that box. He made it to that point. Let's move to the next milestone. Um, I was a little worried about that, but just didn't really think all that much of it. So then the next milestone was sitting up, typically around six months old. 
Um, and he just wasn't really making much progress moving in that direction when he was around six months old. And that's what really started nagging at me. Um, but I would say it wasn't until he hit nine months and still was not sitting up that we really were thinking something is going on here. Um, yeah. You know, we talked to his pediatrician and other parents and researched online and everyone just was telling us, he'll be fine. He's just a little bit behind. And that's very normal. And I wanted to believe that. <laughs> so um, when he was nine months old, we got him involved in early intervention, had him evaluated, and he was found to be slightly delayed in his motor skills. So we started working with physical therapist at that point and Initially, he did improve, uh, but that kind of tapered off pretty quickly. And then he ended up being diagnosed when he was 13 months old because right around his first birthday, he suffered three grand mal seizures. Um, he got an RSV infection, got very ill, which resulted in the three seizures we spent about a week in the ER um, and the seizures combined with the developmental delays were a big red flag to all of the doctors and so we had an MRI done that was abnormal and indicative of a metabolic disorder and then they did genetic testing and found Tay-Sachs shortly after that and it's kind of interesting because my mother-in-law had done 23andMe um, when James was about 10 months old mm -hmm. and determined that she was a Tay-Sachs carrier, which was a shock because neither my husband or I have any Jewish background in our family. And I knew about Tay-Sachs and I knew that it had was primarily found in Jewish backgrounds, or so I thought. And... Um, so that was the first time it was on our radar was when, you know, that was found back in the fall. But again, I just was, blew it off because I said, there's no way we're not, neither of us are Jewish. This can't be what it is. And when he was finally diagnosed and that's what it was, we were very shocked um, just because of what everyone says about Tay-Sachs. Um, so, yeah. It was, in what? In what context had you heard of Tay-Sachs previously? Like, I feel like most people wouldn't, um, or especially most people who are not Jewish, would not have even heard of Tay-Sachs at all. I actually learned about Tay-Sachs in high school psychology class. Um, mm. I remember we watched a movie called Lorenzo's Oil, and oh, yeah. it's about a similar but different disease. I'm not sure exactly what it was, but we learned about Tay-Sachs at that time. And I remember thinking, I will never have to worry about that because I'm not Jewish. Mm -hmm. And lo and behold, here we are, <laughs> however many years later. Um, so I guess that's something that I try to share with people going forward is that your ethnic background does not determine what your risk is. Yeah. What, um, how do you tell, explain to people what Tay-Sachs is? Or, or do you? 
Um, the short version, I just uh-huh. tell them it's an inherited uh, genetic disease that is progressive in the brain and the spinal cord and causes um, progressive death of neurons, I think it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's due to the lack of the enzyme hex A in the brain. And that enzyme is needed for life. And without it, you have all kinds of symptoms that you cannot live with for very long. Right. And when they did the MRI, the signs that they saw, did that make them think that specifically he had, well, you said Tay-Sachs or some sort of metabolic condition? All that they told us was, it was, the findings were indicative of a, a metabolic disorder. Um, and our pediatrician tried to reassure us at that point and said, you know, there's tons of different metabolic disorders. You can manage them with diet sometimes or take a certain vitamin or medication. And, but when you look up metabolic disorder, Tay-Sachs is pretty much what comes up. And so, I mean, I tried to be hopeful, but as soon as we got those MRI results, I pretty much knew that it was bad news. Um, so, yeah. Was it your pediatrician who talked to you about the results or a neurologist or who was giving you this, the information? Um, we were diagnosed through a geneticist at the children's hospital where we live. Uh, they were the ones who ordered all of the genetic testing after the, uh, findings of the MRI. And they, they had actually told us that his MRI findings could resolve themselves and eventually be okay. Um, that it, they were very unspecific or nonspecific rather. And mm-hmm. um, so they said we were just doing all this genetic testing to rule things out. And so they were shocked as well when Tay-Sachs came back and they called us in and I actually wasn't able to go to the appointment. My husband and my mother-in-law, my dad went and he called them in and he looked at my mother-in-law and said, so you're the Tay-Sachs carrier. Oh gosh. And delivered the blow and told my husband that we should never have children together. And there was no hope for James and that we should take him home and wait for him to die. So this is what a, this is what a medical geneticist told you. Yes. Was there, I guess, I mean this, you heard um, secondhand from your family, right? But it sounds mm-hmm. like, like a horrible way for, <laughs> yeah. for yeah. any medical provider to deliver information, but right. you know, especially in genetics, like dealing with these situations more often, um, yeah. you know, usually expect something that would be, uh, a lot less uh, appalling. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, do you know was there a was there a genetic counselor with a geneticist, or was it just a geneticist who was talking to your family? It was a geneticist, I believe, the head geneticist at the hospital, but I'm not 100 percent sure on that. And his assistant, I'm not sure what her title was. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was it. And we're kind of. We've been very occupied with our son's care for the last year since his diagnosis, but now that he is no longer with us, we really want to go back to the hospital and have a conversation about, like, what is an appropriate way to 
deliver news like that. And, Mm -hmm. you know, we feel that they should have had a social worker or a chaplain or both present for that. Mm-hmm. And I think two things about that situation that were horrible to me. Number one, telling me and my husband that we should never have children together because that's false and, you know, not presenting accurate information about our options. I don't think that was appropriate. And then also not providing us any support. We uh, got involved with palliative care and hospice uh-huh. through my mother-in-law, who used to be a hospice worker. Okay. Whereas I would, I would think like that that's another thing that's like key in genetics. Like one of the benefits should be that they should be immediately trying to connect you to those resources. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, with genetics, you can't change these things, but you can equip people with information to make choices. And we definitely were not given that from the beginning and had to seek it out on our own. And so I'm hopeful that we can go talk to the hospital and explain what happened to us and, you know, how they could maybe make improvements for the next time they have to give a family a negative diagnosis. Yeah. Wow. (laughs) I've heard of, I've heard of people having, you know, not, not always, people don't always have good experiences with genetic counseling or with a geneticist, but I think that's, that's probably the worst story I've heard to date. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. We've met with several of them and everyone else we've met with has been phenomenal. So at the same hospital, um, no different centers, different. Yeah. Um, the other one was through my OB at a different hospital, but the geneticist at the children's hospital was the bad experience. It's kind of like the trifecta, like insensitive, inaccurate, and unhelpful, like all yeah. <laughs> all together, which are like the three the three things that they should potentially be providing you with. It's like right, right. Accurate information delivered in as kind of a way as possible. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> connecting yeah. you to resources. Yeah, wow. Well, and I mean, I fully credit our family support and the strength that me and my husband had to pull out of nowhere for the fact that we were able to deal with this situation. And I just, it really pains me to think that someone who might not be aware of the different options would walk out of that meeting with nothing, you know, thinking that they have no hope for their future and no assistance for their child, more importantly. Because James was fairly normal other than the developmental delays up until the point where he was diagnosed. But shortly after that, he started to have a lot of pain. And it was because we were involved with palliative care that we were able to take care of that. And, you know, that delay in getting those services can make a huge difference in a child's life, you know, depending on their diagnosis. We'll be back with patient stories in just a minute. Did you know that when it comes to planning a family, the ideal time to meet with a genetic counselor is actually before you become pregnant? Speaking with a genetic counselor can help you to understand the many different testing options available to you both before and during pregnancy. From carrier screening to diagnostic testing options and everything in between, Gray Genetics is here to help. 
In a preconceptual genetic counseling appointment, a certified genetic counselor will also evaluate your family history and discuss any known or suspected hereditary conditions. They can also help you to understand the likelihood of passing on those conditions to the next generation. By connecting with a genetic counselor over the phone or through secure video conferencing, discussing genetic testing or other preconceptual options is more convenient than ever. To learn more about preconceptual genetic counseling or how to make an appointment, go to graygenetics.com. That's G-R-E-Y genetics.com. How did you make the transition from, you know, your your husband and your in-laws being at that appointment, hearing that information, and then your mother-in-law helping connect you to palliative care services or just like even kind of figuring out what, what the next step was since the hospital didn't help you with that? Yeah, she was great um, because she used to be a hospice worker. She knew everything that needed to be done. And so she made some phone calls and we tried to get set up with the hospice team through our county uh, because we didn't want anything to do with the children's hospital after how they treated us. Um, And they actually weren't able to accept us because they don't do pediatric. But so we were sent back to the children's hospital and we got set up with the palliative care there. And I cannot speak more highly of anyone than them. That's good that (laughs) within that same hospital, you did have a really good experience with a totally different care team. Yeah, they were, I mean, they changed our life. (laughs) So how did, how, um, how did they, like, how much were you involved with them? Were you at the hospital a lot or was he, um, admitted often or were you calling them or like, how did you actually receive that support from them? Yeah. So we talked a lot at the very beginning with the palliative care team, you know, what are our goals for James and for ourselves Mm -hmm. in his care? And it was really important to us knowing that his time was so limited that we enjoyed every minute and that, you know, we weren't trying to squeeze out more time necessarily, but quality time. And so we said from the very beginning, we don't want to take him to the doctor and we don't want to take him to the hospital. Yeah. And that was our goal. And we were, successful with that. I really pride ourselves on that. Um, and were you, were you and your husband, were you immediately on the same page with those, those goals or did you have like different inclinations initially or did it take a while for you to come to knowing what you really wanted? We were pretty instantly on the same page. Um, we kind of struggled for the months leading up to his diagnosis. We approached our feelings about the worry and the fear about him very differently. And that was a very challenging time for us. And so for me, and I think he would agree, as soon as we got the diagnosis, it was like a switch flipped for me. You know, I could deal with this as horrible as I was and Mm -hmm. not what I wanted to hear. I could make decisions and we could move forward with that knowledge. And a lot of people don't understand that. They think, you know, getting the news would be the unbearable part of it. But for us, we had so much unknown for so long Mm -hmm. that it was kind of, 
not a relief, that's the wrong word, but it helped us to have an answer and be able... Like what you're dealing with and what you could actually expect. Right. Like, you know, the second he was diagnosed, I knew that I had to let go of every dream that I ever had for him. And I accepted who he was in that moment. And that, I think, is what helped me over the next year to cope with his diagnosis the best is like letting go of what we had hoped his future would be and accepting James for exactly who he was and letting him be who he could be, which was very different from a typical child. And so when we met with the team, the palliative care team, we said, you know, we don't want to spend our time in the hospital We took him to the doctor twice in the year between his diagnosis and when he passed away. We had the palliative care nurses came out to our home every couple weeks and Mm -hmm. evaluated him at home. There were a few times he got sick. They gave us medication, you know, at home and we were able to manage his medication 100% over the phone. He started having seizures when he was about one and a half regularly. Uh And we had to put him on seizure medicine for that. And his doctors and nurses were amazing in respecting what our goals were for him. And when we felt like he needed more medicine, we just called and said, you know, his seizures are picking up. We need to give him more medication. And they would make those adjustments. So... It was a totally different experience than working with, quote unquote, a typical doctor-patient relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really, we all really valued that they were so flexible and allowing us to have some choices in a situation where you feel like you have no control. Yeah. So it was... They were instrumental in helping us to make it through all of this. And not only that, but having good memories also. Yeah. And not just the bad ones. Like what, what's an example of like what, um, you know, once you had that diagnosis and like you mentioned, in, in a lot of ways it was easier for you um, just accepting him for, you know, like what who he was and the time you were going to have with him. Like what, how, what are like some of the good memories that, um, that you had with him after that diagnosis? For the first few months, we tried to get him out and do things, you know, be as normal as possible. We would take him on bike rides. My mom loved to, you know, put him in the little thing that pulls behind your bike. I don't know what those are Uh called. Um, (laughs) But I know what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. She would take him for bike rides and, we had a stroller, we would take him for walks, and we would go out to eat and bring him with us and all of that. And then as he progressed, those things became harder, mostly because of his seizure activity. Um, and so we kind of had to adjust. Like, as soon as we would get comfortable, he would change, and we had to, you know, accommodate that and figure out what his needs were. And so as it progressed, we couldn't really go out in public as much because he would just get overstimulated and trigger lots of seizures. 
So we learned just to be content in the moment, I guess. Um, we weren't go, go, go all the time. We would sit on our back porch and just hold him. I held him so much, like all the time. Mm -hmm. um, because eventually that became a struggle too. You know, every time we would move him, he would have a seizure. And wow. so we, we just learned to anticipate what he needed and kind of read where he was at. So we just kind of adjusted as he went along. Eventually, we couldn't really take him anywhere uh, or even move him at all. And so we laid in bed with him quite a bit. Um, and we loved that. It was frustrating at times that, you know, we felt kind of prisoner to our house. But at the same time, we knew that our time was so limited that we also tried to embrace that, I guess. And those are probably my best memories with James is just sitting either on the bed or on the couch or on our back porch and holding him in my lap. And mm -hmm. I really am grateful for that. And I know you, you mentioned that um, you found a lot of support through in, with the families you connected through, through the National Tay-Sachs and Allied Diseases Association. Did, did you connect with them um, after you lost James or when he was still with you? Um, did you connect with families who were going through like similar situations that like helped you with kind of like what to expect and how to spend time with him? Yeah, um, it was kind of both. Uh, right when he was diagnosed, my mom joined a bunch of Facebook groups uh, for kids with Tay-Sachs and their families to try and get information and support. And that was how we got um, set up with NTSAD and the resources and help that they were able to provide us. Um, she, My mom was super active with the Facebook pages for a while. Personally, for me, that was too much. It scared me at first. And I just was too nervous, I guess, to be a part of that. I didn't want to see how bad it would get. And looking back on it, I should have been involved earlier. I think it would have been really good for me. But I just couldn't handle it for a while. Um, and they were a great resource. Just me talking to the other families when we had questions about James's progression or medication. People were able to give us kind of a clue what was going on because with such a rare disease the doctors didn't really know all that much um, right and then so after James passed away we got me and my husband got much more involved with NTSAD the NTSAD has a family conference every year and we happened to be able to go because it was a week or two after James had passed away and we had wanted to go, but we weren't going to just because he was not doing very well. And I think the timing really worked out. He was looking out for us. He wanted us to go to that conference. Mm -hmm. And so he said, it's my time to go. And 
So we went to the conference. We met all the other families. I mean, it was a wonderful group of people. There are families there who lost children 40 years ago from Tay-Sachs who are still wow. a part of the conference. And yeah. it was just a huge testament to me of how it affects people's lives even decades later and how they can make something good out of it. Um, because I'd say there was probably 80% of the families there had already lost their loved one. And mm -hmm. there were very few with living family members affected. And it was just a really great support system. And we made friends all over the world, uh, friends in Alaska, Canada, Texas, all of it. So it was just a great group. Yeah. And so we're kind of in a, I feel like in a time where gene therapies are starting to finally feel like they might be pretty close for a lot of different diseases. Um, and I know we meant, you mentioned just when we were emailing that that's the case also for, for Tay-Sachs, right? Was that part mm -hmm. of the, the conversation at the, at the conference too? Yeah, they had a lot of sessions about it and this was our first conference. So we don't really have a history to base it on, but there was a lot of talk about how never before has there been a promising treatment or cure on the horizon. And now there finally is because of gene therapy. And they actually dosed a child who's two years old with Tay-Sachs with a gene therapy in the fall. And the preliminary results look really good. And I think we still have a long way to go. You know, it's going to be at least several years before these things are released to the public, but it's very promising and I think we're getting very close and that yeah. gives me a lot of hope. So it sounds like it was like a, they're in a stage three clinical trial for a treatment. Um, I'm not sure about the stage. Okay. Yeah. I know for Tay-Sachs, I think for the Tay-Sachs one, I believe they're still gathering information for the clinical trial. Um, NTSAD is, the, it stands for, there's some allied diseases, things like Canavan, Sandhoff, and GM1. Um, there's some clinical trials that are underway for those diseases. And those are a little bit further along than the Tay-Sachs ones. Okay. And the, the commonality is that they're all lysosomal storage diseases, right? Correct. I've, yes. I guess I'm extra surprised to hear you had such a negative experience with the geneticist because you mentioned um, when we were going back and forth and maybe to Elizabeth, the marketing coordinator, that, that you're actually interested in going back to school for genetic counseling, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, so how do you get from having a horrible experience in genetics to actually um, wanting to go into that other than the obvious of like doing a better job than they did for sure? Yeah, that's definitely part of it. Um, but we are working on the process of trying to have a healthy child who will not be affected by Tay-Sachs. And in that process, we've met with another genetic counselor through um, my OBGYN, and she was phenomenal, so total opposite experience of what we had before, and very compassionate and willing to help in any way that she could. And that, she, she just really made a difference to me. Like, I was so afraid of 
what our options were and, you know, just worried about it all. And she just really put my mind at ease and helped me to see that, yes, this is a challenge, but we can work with it and there is hope for us. And so she made an impact on me. And also just, I think for me, the whole fact that Tay-Sachs is supposedly a Jewish disease and we are not Jewish. And we actually did another carrier screening after all of this to just to make sure that there were no other problems that we needed to be aware of. Uh-huh. And I am a carrier for a disease besides Tay-Sachs that is most common in people of African descent. Hmm. And I also do not have that in my background. My brother did our whole family tree. So I think we would know if that was in our background, either Jewish or African and neither are. And the genetic counselor did say to me, she was like, well, you are the perfect example of you cannot assume that you know your risk based on your ethnicity and regional background. Um, so I think for me that's important is like educating people on what they bring to the table genetically and helping them to see that there are options and just more awareness of all of these things. Yeah, I think it's interesting because uh, I guess something like Tay-Sachs or often they like what what people will know or, you know, in terms of education, public awareness, whichever ethnic group a a disease is most common in is what's going to get the most attention. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, even if it totally exists in other, (laughs) in other populations, you know, um, and I mean, it's a low risk maybe until, until it happens to you and then it's just your reality. Yeah. Yep. We are one in 250,000, I believe they said, Uh that this happened to us. So I just want to educate people. I talk about carrier screening whenever I can. And it doesn't necessarily have to change what path you're on, but at least you have that knowledge and you can have an educated decision instead of, you know, being blindsided by a diagnosis like we were. Yeah. Did you, um, were you offered carrier screening before pregnancy or maybe, maybe for like, for instance, for more common conditions like cystic fibrosis? Do you, do you remember any of those tests being done? I believe I was screened for cystic fibrosis. I remember there being uh, check boxes, are you Jewish and a few other ethnicities and, you know, I checked no and We did see a genetic counselor when I was pregnant about um, the non-invasive prenatal blood test. Uh Uh-huh. I think it's called NIPT. So we we had that done, and we went over our family history. But it was kind of like, at that point, I'm not sure if we were offered the carrier screening then or not. Mm -hmm. But at that point, I felt like, It was too late. And so I think that's important too, educating people so they know to ask their doctor to get that done before they get pregnant. Because, you know, if I had found that out then, would it have changed the outcome? I'm not sure. And 
On top of that, the Tay-Sachs mutation that I carry is incredibly uncommon. Very, very, very rare. My husband's is more common. But mine, I am not sure would have been picked up by a carrier test. Um, okay. So... I don't know. We can say what could have, would have, should have happened. I try not to dwell on that too much. Um, mm. But just help people going forward in the future to be aware of their choices and options for these things. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so you mentioned that you're you're trying to have or you're planning to have more children despite <laughs> despite what the geneticist said, said yeah. you know like if it instructing you not to not to have more children so what yeah. are, what are those what do those options look like like what what were the options that the genetic counselor talked about you with um, talked about with you and were all of those options surprising to you or did some seem like a better like more palatable to you than other options? Um, my husband and I ran the full spectrum of emotions on all of our options. Uh, we spent many months thinking about the different options, but basically there were three. We could roll the dice as people like us call it, because with Tay-Sachs, there's a 25% chance, uh, a future, every pregnancy would be affected and 75% chance that they would not be affected. Um, and that was very scary to us, um, especially because we were not willing to bring another child into the world with Tay-Sachs. So that was a big stressor for us. Um, another option that was presented to us would be egg or sperm donation, have a child with someone else. And I was kind of appalled by that suggestion. Uh Um, and so that was never really on the table for us. And then our last option is IVF in vitro fertilization with pre-implantation genetic diagnosis. So, uh, we'll do IVF, we'll get our embryos, they can perform genetic testing on the embryos, and then we would only proceed with a pregnancy that would not be affected. And we considered rolling the dice, and that was just too much stress. And, and if you, I mean, if you did that, like if you, like you said, like if you rolled the dice, then, um, you know, I'm guessing they talked to you about options of doing diagnostic testing during pregnancy, but it's just like scary, the idea of thinking that, um, you know, that 25% chance that you get the diagnosis again. Is that right? Yes. Um, We could have done testing when I would be about 10 weeks pregnant to determine if the baby had Tay-Sachs. And Mm -hmm. I mean, we did think about that uh, because I feel like people in who don't aren't aware of a lot of these things, they just say, oh, well, you can do IVF. It's fine. But they don't (laughs) like it's it's simple. (laughs) Yeah. First off, it's costing us tens of thousands of dollars because we are doing IVF. Um, Mm -hmm. And so that's an issue for a lot of people. It's very difficult to swallow spending that much money on a chance to have a child and just the success rates, you know, 75% chance of six, you know, a healthy child. If we rolled the dice, quote unquote, 
versus the chances of success with IVF are, are a lot lower. And so I think every family struggles with that. Who's in our position, you know, what choice to make. Um, and there was a lot of fear that we would be in that 25% and have an affected child and then not have an option to make a choice at that point. Um, and that was, I could not live, we could not live. I think my husband would agree with me and I can speak for both of us that we knew after watching what happened to James that it was absolutely not an option to have another child with Tay-Sachs because we did our very best to take care of him, but he suffered and mm -hmm. that just wasn't going to happen again. Um, right. So that's kind of how we settled on IVF, but it's definitely a very challenging issue for many reasons. It's multifaceted and I don't envy people having to make the choice like we did. Having been through this experience that I guess is still like really fresh, like just having lost your son and then this better experience with a genetic counselor and starting this IVF process, do you see anything that could just generally <laughs> be better for, for a lot of people in, in somewhat similar situations, either with a really sick child um, receiving a diagnosis or, um, either for healthcare providers or the way, the way you've interacted with people and the things they've said that have and haven't been helpful. I think, I think sometimes it's, it's just like a scary thing to talk to someone who's going through something that's like so overwhelming, um, in yeah. terms of the grief and to know like, well, what, what could you possibly say that not only not really would be helpful, but wouldn't be like absolutely a horrible thing to say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I guess on that note, I also try, I use my Instagram to try and share things about grief and like my feelings and the way that I process it and just as a way to educate people because like you said, the vast majority of people don't know anyone who has been through anything this horrible um, and people mean well, but they don't know what to say. They don't know what to do. And mm -hmm. so I've, I share my thoughts just to kind of open people's eyes to how I feel about certain things. And I've gotten a lot of positive feedback from people saying, please keep sharing. This is really helpful to me to understand what you're going through. And yeah. it kind of scared me, honestly, to share my feelings because people don't understand and that can be hard to not be understood but in general sharing has been a very positive experience for me and kind of back to your original question you know what do I think is most important or do I wish people knew about all of this is support is probably the biggest defining factor in a situation like this whether it's your family or your friends and your spouse your job um, finding medical professionals who will support you I don't take for granted for a minute all of the resources that we were given 
from everyone in our life to help us make it through this. And so I think finding that support when you're faced with a diagnosis is very important. And just, it helps you to accept it and cope with it and find people who can truly help you. If you'd like to share your story, send an email to podcast at graygenetics.com. Patient Stories is an ad-free podcast and is unaffiliated with any commercial genetic testing laboratories. We would like to keep it that way. You can now donate to Patient Stories online by going to graygenetics.com slash podcast slash donate. If you don't want to make a monetary donation but still want to support the show in another way, leaving a review on iTunes or sharing our episodes through social media also makes a big difference. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute medical advice and is also not a substitute for genetic counseling. Neither Gray Genetics nor any of its guests makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast. Evaluation of an individual's personal and family health history is a crucial part of genetic counseling and any recommendations.